0: Good morning. Let me pray for us before we kick off into this. Father God, you are strong. You are sovereign in our weakness. It's by your might that we live. Please teach us about that this morning. Please show us yourself in your word. Show us what we need to hear. Amen. Amen. Good morning, then. If if you're just visiting us, you should know that this morning we're coming to the end of a series. So this is week four of us looking at the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And it's fair to say it's begun to get fairly chewy. Um, We had two weeks on the nice Sunday school friendly chapters six and seven. I understand why Matthew chose to focus on that for the children's talk. but We see the God of the underdog at work. So in chapter six, we we saw a God who is patient with his people's doubt and who is gracious in drawing them back to him, even when they turn away again and again. In chapter seven, we saw a sovereign, powerful God at work who makes it absolutely clear that it's God's power that saves Israel. And he works out his salvation in in phenomenal, surprising ways. He disarms the strength of the world. Then last week, as we looked at the first half of chapter 8, things become less Sunday school friendly. We see Israel divided against its leader, apparently oblivious to the, the mighty hand of the Lord that's been at work. We saw mighty Gideon, God's chosen saviour for his people, revealed to be inadequate, driven by vengeance and delivering blood-curdling justice. And we saw that within the context of the book of Judges, it's not surprising. This is a book that again and again shows the mighty Lord acting to save his people, but again and again it shows that they need more. Their political and their military leaders let them down. They are insufficient. And the people's hearts don't change. So again and again, Israel turns away from the Lord who's given them security. And so again and again, they find themselves back in desperate straits. The book of Judges is a a downward spiral into the mire. And Gideon's failings, are neither the first or the last, and they're not the worst that we see either. But we do see hope as well. When we see it in the whole context of the Bible's story, we begin to realise that the, the purpose of this book of Judges is to show Israel their need, and it points them forwards to a greater salvation, one that will be sufficient, one that will bring lasting change. And so last week, as we looked at the first three of five episodes in chapter 8, we saw how insufficient Gideon's strength was, how badly Israel failed. And perhaps as we reflected on how we've been let down or hurt ourselves or how badly we fail, as Judges shows us those things, we're able to look forward through Scripture to Jesus and see a contrast. We get to see the one who, unlike Gideon, embodies true strength. The one who judges the nations with justice, but also compassion and gentleness. We get to see the one whose strength will never fail us in the way that we see in chapter 8. And that's the point of Judges. So this week, We're looking at the second half of Judges, at the fourth and fifth episodes of chapter 8. And rather than seeing what's lacking in Gideon's misdirected strength, this week I think we're seeing what's lacking in his wisdom. But just like last week, ultimately this points forwards to a greater saviour. And so while we see bitter failings here, with awful consequences... We get to look forward to the contrast that we have in Jesus. Let's look then at these two episodes. I think it's good that we've slowed down. We've taken four weeks to cover the story of Gideon. It, if we deal with it in one sitting, then maybe this section just feels like the epitaph, the, the judge's equivalent of, and they lived happily ever after, onto the next judge. But I think these verses are more serious than we give them credit for at first. Last week's material was pretty horrible. But it only covered a span of a few days, maybe weeks. Maybe there was still hope. Maybe after a a rocky first few weeks in office, Gideon, the judge that God has raised up, will grow into the role and rule Israel well and the nation will be established in security. Maybe not. What we see instead here is a slowly unfolding train wreck. As from a poor start, everything else comes off the rails. And we see that Israel cannot yet be saved. Because their hearts are all wrong. They're focused on the wrong stuff. And we see that Gideon cannot be the saviour because his heart is equally flawed. There's a failure of wisdom. They don't properly know and fear their Lord. So we're going to see that in Gideon's public life in verses 22 to 27. And then in his family life in verses 28 to 35. First, look how their wisdom is inadequate in public life. Verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And immediately, the readers need to see that something is badly wrong. The Israelites turned to Gideon and say, you saved? No, he didn't. Remember chapter 7, verse 2, where the Lord began to whittle away Gideon's arm. He's saying, Gideon, you've got too many men. I can't save you like this. If you go into battle like this, Israel will think their own strength has been victorious. Remember chapter 7, verse 22, where Gideon and his men don't even draw swords. And the Lord scatters the Midianite army. The Israelites are putting credit in the wrong place. They're giving to Gideon what belongs to God. Something is wrong. And then worse, they try to set him up as their king. And to get a flavour of what's wrong with that, think of, of later in 1 Samuel 8, where you've got the great prophet judge Samuel, and he's immensely displeased when the Israelites come to him and ask him to appoint a king over them. And the Lord tells him that it's not Samuel that's being rejected, the Israelites are rejecting the Lord's rule when they do that. But by comparison, this is worse. You see, in 1 Samuel 8, Israel are asking their holy man to appoint the right leader over them. They're not choosing for themselves. And in 1 Samuel 8, they do it at least partially because they can see that Samuel's sons aren't fit to rule them after he dies. So it's partially justified there. Here, though, the, the Israelites aren't giving any reference to God at all. They're just choosing Gideon. They appear to be setting up a, a strong man over them, just an imitation, maybe, of the Midianite kings who've been kicking them around. That's what strength looks like, right? And, of course, they should know better. be worth keeping a finger here in Judges 8 And looking up as well, Deuteronomy 17, you can find that on page 196. We'll look at that uh, a couple of times. Let me read Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. We'll look back at that in a moment. But for now, just see that Gideon is not the king God has chosen to rule over them. They're just clearly trying to imitate the nations around them rather than live in the different relationship with the Lord that they've been called to. Their hearts are set on the wrong stuff.
1: Keep a, a finger in Deuteronomy and look back at Judges
0: 8, verse 23. And, and Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son, the Lord will rule over you. And for the first time in ages, it begins to feel almost hopeful. You're correct answer, Gideon. That is what they need to hear. It's a, a statement of faith in the sovereign, saving Lord. I think. That statement, along with chapters 6 and 7, is what sees Gideon listed as one of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. In that instant, he is the saviour that they need. He points them back to God. That's wisdom. But See how inconsistent he is? I will not rule you, but do this one thing for me. And then in the next few verses, we see him set up as king in all but name. Even down to the tacit assumption that his children should have ruled over Israel after him. We'll flip back to Deuteronomy 17 then. We'll see what the king should and shouldn't be like. Deuteronomy 17 verse 17. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 and to 20. The king is to write out a copy of the law for himself and keep it with him and learn from it all the days of his life and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and not turn from the law in any way at all. How does Gideon's wisdom match up to that? Well, we'll see in a moment he, he has enough wives to have 70 sons over the next 40 years. And at least one child by a concubine. What's his first act as sort of king? Well, check out verses 24 to 26. Each of you give me a little bit of gold. It comes to 20 kilograms or so in total, which on today's market, uh, my Google history gets strange when I uh, prepare some. Today's market, that's about 60,000 pounds. that's... Not including something a bit dodgy. there's this plunder taken from his enemy's camels. He takes that back in verse 21, and it spoils of battle that, I wonder, shouldn't those have been given over to the Lord and destroyed? Think of what happened in Joshua seven, when Achan at Jericho takes some of the plunder. Or think of Saul's undoing when he lets his army take plunder in 1 Samuel 15. Something's off here with Gideon's priorities. He's setting himself up like a rich man from one of the other nations. Doesn't he value the Lord above all others?
1: What about the, the kingly knowledge of and obedience to the law from Deuteronomy? Or verse
0: 27 here, Gideon takes all the gold and he makes an ephod. That's a a priestly garment. And we think, oh great, he's he's trying to honour God. Except Gideon knows there's already an ephod. It was made according to the pattern that the Lord set down in Exodus 28. A pattern which was rich in symbolism and meaning to teach Israel about their Lord. And that ephod was already in use. It had been in a town called Shiloh all this time, worn and used by the priests there as they ministered before the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe maybe Gideon tells himself he's doing honor to God here, but see what's happening? He's setting up this ridiculous showy golden ephod in his hometown. So that he can divine the Lord's will on his home turf. So that he doesn't have to travel to the tabernacle. Rather, he's brought God to him, and
1: Israel comes there to find out what to do. Just who is being honored?
0: It's a very public failing of wisdom. And it reveals that he does not know the Lord who called him. And so, rather than leading Israel back towards the Lord, which is what verse 23 looks like, instead we get verse 27. He, he points them in the wrong direction. He teaches them that rather than worshipping the living God who's delivered them from the hands of the Midianites, that They can be seduced into worshipping a gold-studded tunic. Gideon's not been the leader they need. We see that in his public life, but also we see it in his family life. Look at verses 28 to 32 with me. We get 40 years of peace here. It's been bought for Israel, and Midian is subdued forever. And and Gideon goes home and he has this huge, sprawling family. Many wives and 70 sons and another son born to a concubine in the next town over. And Gideon dies at a good old age and he's buried with his ancestors. And at this, the first reaction of the Israelite readers is probably, wow, great. It's the picture of a blessed life. He's got a huge flock of sons, the strength of their father. And even having a concubine on the side. (laughs) Go on, Gideon. And he, he dies at a good old age. And he's buried in the right way, sharing his father's tomb. It's the picture of a life and a family line that are blessed by God. I think that's right. That's okay as a first reaction. Gideon did step out in faith. The Lord did use him to rescue and establish his people. He's a hero. And and he did live, to some degree at least, under the Lord's blessings. But then maybe the second reaction is going to be
1: to remember Deuteronomy 17 again. Why has he got so many wives? Doesn't he realise that he's compromising himself? Doesn't he see that he's going to get led astray?
0: What exactly is he living for? Where's his priority? Is it honouring and following the Lord's ways? Does he know the Lord well enough to be standing out, distinct from the nations around him? Or is he just enjoying everything that he can take from the world? And then a few details begin to coalesce. All is not right here. Do you remember in verse 20 last week? Gideon gave his eldest son Jetha, who was still only a boy, the opportunity to be the one who executes the enemy kings.
1: That felt odd, didn't it? What's the lesson he's teaching his child there? Remember verse
0: 27 this week. This ephod, it becomes a snare to Gideon and his family. His children then grow up surrounded by the legend of Gideon. Seeing their father with his own special golden idol made from stuff that he won in victory in his hometown. Not a king, not a king. But a hero. Living like a king. What about verse 31? And we see that as well as all his legitimate children, he has a special child. He's the son of a concubine. So born outside the covenant blessing. But special enough, treasured enough, that he's given the name Abimelech. That's a sort of half name, half title. It means my father is king. It's the sort of name that
1: the crown prince would take. The heir apparent. What's Gideon saying to Jethro? What's going on? What is he teaching his children?
0: Last week, as part of the service, we, we looked at Psalm 78, where the psalmist talks about how Israel is to pass on knowledge of the Lord from generation to generation. Let me read some of that. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. And and that's the picture of what Israel's meant to look like. Each generation teaching
1: their kids the wonders of the faithful sovereign God so that their children will walk in faith. What's Gideon teaching his kids? Is he raising them to put their trust in God, to have
0: God's deeds in mind, to keep God's commands? Or is he raising them in the cult of Gideon? Most of you will know that I've got a three month old daughter. Now, one of the most daunting aspects, no, okay, the most daunting aspect of that is boys, but one of the most daunting aspects is that she's going to grow up seeing me, warts and all. She will see where my priorities lie. She will see the things that I can hide from you guys. And she will learn from them. So will she see in me a life that remains steadfastly faithful? Not just outwardly, but consistently, inwardly,
1: in the very core, grounded and anchored in faith in the Lord. Or will she see someone who, like Gideon, has talked a good game and put on an
0: impressive show, but in their home life is merely living out the dream of the world?
1: What am I teaching her? It's not a small thing.
0: It's not just the public life that matters. Judges 8 shows us that Gideon's heart and wisdom are all wrong, but actually it's the consequences of his family life being out of kilter that are the most far-reaching. Look with me at 8 verse 33. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals, they set up baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. That, that snippet there, I think, is the consequence of his public failure of wisdom. He has not managed to set Israel straight after verse 22. He's left them instead, in verse 27, with an idol in Ophrah. Instead of modelling true worship of the Lord before the Ark of the Covenant in Shiloh, he's taught them they can worship on their own terms wherever they like. And so immediately their, their unchanged hearts hair off other, after other gods. The moment Gideon, Jerob Baal, the one who contended with and defeated Baal, the moment he dies... They set up Baal-Bareth as their god, imitating the nations around them. They've not remembered the Lord who rescued them from their enemies. They've not been mended. They need something more. It's the pattern of the book of Judges again, isn't it? Now that's the consequence of his public failure, but then flick your eyes over chapter 9. And really, I think that's the epilogue of Gideon's story before the next judge comes along. In chapter 9, we we see the fallout of Gideon's home life. Abimelech, remember that the favoured son of the concubine, rather than one of the children of the covenant promise. Abimelech comes to power, and he murders his half-brothers, and the country is plunged into turmoil, And it doesn't end until the town of Shechem has been totally destroyed, including, incidentally, the temple of the false god of Bereth in 9 verse 46. But by then, the the line of Gideon has been almost completely severed. So all his achievement, all his victory, all the blessing, all his family has been ground to dust. Because the wisdom that it was
1: built on was worthless. He did not know and fear the Lord. Judges 8 has been hard work, hasn't it? It's not uplifting stuff.
0: Remember that the point of Judges is that it shows us how much more we need than a Gideon or a Samson could ever fulfill. And at the heart of this chapter are two lovely quotes where people say things that are so much truer than they realize. So last week it was verse 21. And the enemy kings say, as is the man, so is his strength. And that's an ideal critique of Gideon. It's a summary of why he could never solve the problem at the heart of Israel. He is equally flawed. But it's also a perfect pointer forwards through to Jesus who fulfills everything that Gideon falls short of. This week, the the phrase that's really lodged with me is is, is verse 23. Gideon says, I will not rule over you nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. How right he is. Gideon and his son Abimelech, they do not set Israel straight. But the Lord will. In fact, even here he does. In verse 28, thus Midian was subdued and the land had peace for 40 years. Thus, the, the Lord has secured his people. But in his generosity, it's with a mix of blessing with peace and discipline as he, he continues to show them their weakness. And their need for a saviour who won't leave them prostituting themselves to an idol. The Lord will rule over you. This all points forwards. So Gideon has an ephod made. A priestly garment. But it's full of bling. It's all about Gideon's glory and Gideon's victory and riches. And it sits in front of Gideon's house to bring people to him. A couple of hundred years later when God does select a king for his people. We see a story about King David and an ephod as well in 2 Samuel 6. But that time it's a simple linen undergarment and David is dancing undignified as they bring the ark into Jerusalem. And all the glory is going not to him but to God. It's a better salvation. What a contrast with Gideon. But even then, it's still just a shadow, isn't it? Of something greater to come. So in in John 19, when Jesus goes to the cross, the soldiers strip the clothes from him and they cast lots for his undergarments. And the great high priest, the great king is humbled and stripped as he humbles himself to his father's will.
1: As he becomes nothing for the sake of his people. What a contrast with vainglorious Gideon, eh? The Lord will rule over you, says Gideon.
0: He doesn't know how true it is. But the, the point of judging is that nothing else could fix the problem at the heart of his people. Who else could could meet the challenge of Deuteronomy 17 and live faithful to the Lord every day of their reign? Only Jesus can meet that standard. Who else could establish the, the, the people with their eyes full of the cross so that they wouldn't turn back again and again to dead idols? Who else could liberate the people from slavery to sin? Only the Lord as their king. Only the Lord as their priest is going to be able to do that. I will not rule over you, says Gideon, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you.
1: What's that mean for you? Today or or this week or this year?
0: Let me just ask three pretty difficult questions. First of all, what does it look like for us to honour God in name but not action? That's kind of where Gideon goes wrong in verse 23, isn't it? I won't be king, he says. That would be wrong. You should be turning your eyes to God. But, but then given the chance for riches and authority in the good life, he, he snatches it. Does that resonate with you at all? Are there aspects of your life where you pay lip service to the Lord but actually live indistinguishably from the world around you? I'm assuming it's not just me. I, I say that the word of the Lord and prayer are foundational to Christian life, but do I live accordingly? Do they truly hold pride of place in my day? We teach that... Our treasure is in heaven, that all the things of this earth will pass away, but that the gospel will stand forever. Do friends and colleagues see that in our attitudes to cars or clothing or money or gadgets or pride or popularity? Do you actually live differently from the people around us? Or like Gideon, is it just a a thin veneer of independent
1: church culture over the top? What needs to change? Where do you need to be challenged?
0: Second question, what does it look like for us to seek wisdom on our own terms, not God's? This guy sets up his ephod in his hometown. He inquires of the Lord there with something that's
1: really an image of his own glory. And he leads all of Israel astray as he does that.
0: Where are the places where my decision-making is focused around what I want and where I am?
1: The places where you are not mentally traveling to the tabernacle, But rather, that ephod is set up on home turf. Third question. How are we teaching the next
0: generation? Obviously, that that applies especially to parents and those who work with young people. But it does hit us all. The saying is, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a, a whole church to disciple a young Christian. So, parents especially, but all of us. What are we teaching those younger than us? What does our home life say? Are we like Psalm 78, reminding them always of what the Lord has done? Of his faithfulness from generation to generation. What what will they see and learn when they look at our attitude to church? Beyond words. Will they see from our actions whether it's worth committing to? Whether it's just an optional extra when time
1: allows? What are they going to see about how we value the word?
0: What will they see about our understanding of grace from the way that we treat them, from the way we treat our spouses? Are we modeling gospel relationships behind closed doors? It's the Old Testament's painful. Gideon is, is just one example of many where, where broken relationships at home spill out into lasting, horrible consequences. <laughs> I, I don't want to be a part of that. So am I modelling at home, and in my private relationships, an attitude of penitent, grace-filled dependence on
1: the Lord? Too much to hope to change? Take heart, Judges 8 is
0: pointing forwards. The Lord will rule over you, and unlike Gideon, he will never fail you. He will establish his people in in such a way that they will never need to return to Baal or Ashtoreth or any false idol. He will establish his children as heirs together with Jesus, rather than the the bitter legacy of Gideon. This is the New Testament promise, isn't it? That, That in Jesus, we have an invitation into the freedom of relationship with him. Not the judge's style slavery to a cycle of failure and death. This is paid for and won at the cross by his blood, where in weakness far greater than Gideon's,
1: the Lord has achieved something far greater than the defeat of Midian. And the promise is that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus is raised to a new life.
0: So brothers and sisters, take heart and fix your eyes on him. The Lord will rule over you. And it's he that will empower us to grow and change by the action of his spirit. We're just called to live accordingly. Let me finish with a prayer. I'm going to use Paul's great prayer from Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, where he responds to the glory of what he sees revealed in Jesus. Pray with me. For, For this reason, I kneel before the Father,